Well, last week we started our new series called All the One Another's in the Bible. And as I, my count, I counted 59 one another's and 30 distinct one another's. I put the ones that I found on your bulletin this morning. And I know that other people have brought in uh, uh, their list and have shown it to me. And so it may or may not be different than mine, but uh, there you go. There's at least 31 another's that I came up, distinct one another's. Now, knowing that, we are not able to be able to talk about each individual one another as we go through our series, all the one another. So I have put them into five distinct categories. And in these five distinct categories, we will be able to talk about the overarching uh, idea of each of these one another's. And uh, as you remember, last week we talked about God being a triune God, that God is God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons with one essence. So God, from eternity past to eternity future, whichever way that goes either direction, God has been in perfect unity with himself. And I know that blows my mind. It probably blows your mind. But let's think about it this way, that God, he has been in community and in perfect perfect unity with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for eternity past. And as we discover that they have this perfect unity, we also understand that God created man to have community. We are to have community with each other, and we are to have community with God. And God looked at all of creation, and the only thing that wasn't right was when he looked down at Adam and said it was not good for man to be alone. And so God created Eve, a woman, to be with uh, Adam. And when in this perfect relationship, in this perfect community, in this perfect place, this perfect garden, they had perfect unity. And after Adam awoke from his sleep, he saw Eve for the very first time, and he said, woo-hoo. No, he didn't. I might have said woo-hoo, but Adam did not say woo-hoo. He said these beautiful words found in Genesis chapter 2. It says, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And they were united together as husband and wife. The first relationship involved a unity. Unity of a man and a woman. And in their sinless world, they enjoyed perfect unity. Yet after they sinned, that unity was broken. The very first thing they noticed is that they were naked. The very next thing that they understood, the very next thing that happened after they discovered that they were naked is that they began to point fingers towards one another and their unity was broken. God come and he said, hey, what happened? And Adam said, well, she made me eat the apple. Pointed the finger. It says in Genesis 3, Adam said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And since then, all human relationships have been marred by disunity. And it is the same today. Even in churches around the world and in our country, there are churches that are in 
not uh, disunity with one another. But God's plan for his people involves communities, and particularly the community of the church, to be united, to have unity, to have harmony with one another. And this is where the church and the one another statements come in. They are there to address these situations. They're in there to address uh, and encourage better interpersonal uh, relationships with one another. We don't have time to deal with everyone, so we've broken them down to these five categories. Number one is unity. That's what we'll be talking today. The next is hospitality, and then devotion, and then witness, and then edification. As a reminder, and you can turn to John 17 while I'm talking here. As a reminder, what was the the one another that has the most one another's in the Bible? Y'all remember? Love. Love is the, the thread. It is what binds all the one another's together. Love is what holds us together as a church in unity and harmony. And when, that, when talking about unity, we need to understand that unity cannot happen without love. And so I came up with this definition for unity, and I put it on the screen for you. As we look at unity, we need to understand what unity is and what unity is not. And I want to look at what unity is first. And here is my definition. Unity in the church is the people of God living in harmony with one another. It is having the same mind and serving together as the body of Christ in spite of our differences, our distinctions, and expressions as we are bound to God and one another by the gospel. The unity of the church is to be a reflection of the unity of the triune God upon which the church is built. Biblical theology is not uniformity. It is unity in diversity, striving to fulfill the church's mission given to us by God. Every church, did y'all know this? Every true, biblically speaking, every true church, every church that stands on the word of God, every church has the same mission. All of us do. And that mission is very simple. Number one, our mission is to win the lost to Jesus Christ. Number two, our mission is to edify believers. And number three, our mission is to glorify God. That is the mission of the church. And there's a lot of other things. There's a lot of programs. There's a lot of things that happen. But those are the three things that Jesus has told the church to do. We are to win the lost. We are to edify the saints or believers. And we are to glorify God in the process. That is what we are to do. Now, here at Hollybrook Baptist Church, we have uh, put it in these words, that mission in these words. We are to engage everyone to be God-focused, people-focused, and transformed by the gospel, which is, in fact, these three things that Scripture teaches us to do. The key in fulfilling the mission that God has given us is love. Without love, we will never be able to be the church that God has called us to be. Without love, we can never do the one another's like Christ wants us to do the one another's. As a matter of fact, you're there in John chapter 17. 
I love the Gospel of John. It's my favorite book in the whole Bible. This, perhaps, is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. It's because we find Jesus the night, I mean, just hours before his crucifixion. And what is he doing? He is praying. First, he prays for himself. Then he prays for his apostles. The 12 disciples are now, at this point, 11 disciples. And then he prays for us. He prays for you and me. And what, he, what does he pray? Look in verse 21. He prays that they, that's us, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you think Jesus expects unity in the church? I mean, how many times do we see that we are one, that we have one mind, one goal, one mission, and when Christians are united in Christ, the world sees two things very clearly. First of all, that Jesus was sent to, to the world by the Father. Jesus came because the Father sent him, and he came willingly because the Father sent him. And Jesus, number two, loves the church. He loves us. Matter of fact, he goes on to say that the Father sent Jesus to be the atonement for our sin. You know what that word atonement means? That he paid the price. That no matter how good or how bad you are, that you can never pay the price, that Jesus paid the price, and he did it out of love. It's this love that motivates us to be united in his mission. So I want to spend the rest of our time unwrapping this definition of unity. If you, you can turn with me, or it's on the screen in Romans chapter 15, Paul writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. In our definition of unity, it includes the word harmony. Now, I love to sing. Connie does not let me sing very often. You don't want me to sing, I can assure you of that. As a matter of fact, about three weeks ago, Go ahead and laugh at me. Where's Audrey? I was hoping Audrey would just be there laughing at me because she did online. I uh, inadvertently left my mic on. You couldn't hear me in the house, but everybody listening online could hear me sing. And I was singing dreadfully, I'm sure. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's about all you could hear. I had them take it down. It was so bad. And we're trying to scrub my voice out, and it's so horrible we can't even get it off the tape. So it's bad, you know? And as a matter of fact, when I, uh, I saw Brother Larry Taylor after the service uh, later that day, and he was very quick and sure to remind me of how terrible my singing is. So Brother Larry, if you're watching today, thank you. I love you but I cannot harmonize. I wish I could harmonize. I wish I could sing, but I cannot. I found this definition on harmony, musically speaking, what it means to, to, to be in harmony with one another. Uh oh, I lost it. 
Here it is. Harmony. Musically speaking, it says, Harmony in music is the composite product when individual musical voices group together to form a cohesive whole. The same holds true in the church, does it not? In the church, it is the composite product when we work together, when we serve together, when we minister together, when we do these one another's together, that we come together as a group to form a cohesive whole called the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is, and, and that's what we see here in this harmony. That is the goal of the church. As the composite voice of Hollybrook Baptist Church, each of us should strive to harmonize with one another, to share with one another, to use our gifts for one another, to edify, to serve, to encourage one another. Instead, when we don't harmonize, what do we do? We, it sounds bad. It looks bad. But instead, we are to harmonize. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter uses the word unity in mind, and Paul says that we are to live in harmony. Both of these words, mind and harmony, come from the same Greek root word. And it means to come together. It means to be harmonious. It means to be like-minded in our thoughts and in our actions. The bottom line is God's glory in all that we do. God's people should be speaking with one voice, serving others and glorifying God. That is what we are to do. That is how we harmonize. That is the unity of the church. And when Paul uses, or Peter, when he, Peter uses this word, uh, one mind, it doesn't mean that we all think the same thing. It doesn't mean that we think the same way. That's not what he's talking about. It means that we have that we need to understand one another's viewpoint and that we are to align our viewpoints not with one another but with scripture. This is what we stand on. This this book is the truth. And I can think one thing and someone else can think another thing. And if they are opposing to one another, we have to go to what does the book say? It's about scripture. Harmony and humility then have to go hand in hand. They go together. Because harmony, when it gets disrupted, you know how it gets disrupted? It gets disrupted by pride and self-assertion. So we need humility. Paul writes in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. The secret to unity begins with how we view ourselves within the body of Christ. And then it also begins on how we view others within the body of Christ. And we don't compare ourselves to one another. The one another we compare ourselves to is Jesus and him alone. We are to view ourselves in light of Christ and his perfection. Disunity in a church is most often caused when we act selfishly and consider ourselves better than others. Peter, uh, Paul goes on to explain further in, the father, in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And sadly, in churches that experience disunity, uh, 
the churches that are in conflict, the churches that are in turmoil are generally filled with people looking to their own need, their own desires, their own ambitions. And let me tell you, such behavior is not Christ-like. It is unbeliever-like, not believer-like. And it's those who act that way that do not have the mind of Christ. So Paul tells us that we are to consider other people's needs before our own. Uh, He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's what Ephesians 4 says. And let me just say, you've heard that saying, uh, you're preaching to the choir. Y'all have heard that, right? I feel like that this morning. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir today. Because as I look at Hollybrook Baptist Church, I feel that this church is in unity. That this church is in harmony with one another, in harmony with Christ, in harmony with Scripture. But let me just warn you, and let, let me just say carefully that it only takes a few. If there's only one or two who become dissatisfied, one or two that can spread the seed of discourse... The, the ones that uh, uh, can, can go around and, and take in their bitterness and, and their anger and they spread it to others. So we must be careful. We, we must be careful to maintain the unity that God has taught us to maintain. And one other thing about that, let me say, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and we're in unity and we're humble towards one another then, you know, one of our duties, one of our responsibilities is to to show sin. But we don't do it to say, hey, look at that sin. We do it out of humility so that our brother or our sister will be sanctified, will continue to grow in Jesus Christ. And so in humility, it's okay to point the finger and say, hey, listen, you may want to rethink that. You may want to change that way of thinking. And as we grow into his image and have the mind of Christ, guess what? We will think rightly. And this right thinking leads to right actions. Because we can think rightly, but if we don't put it into practice, it does no good, right? And so we need the actions. And Peter puts it this way. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks of of God, oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We talked about this not long ago, this very verse, that each of us are given spiritual gifts. And our spiritual gifts are given to us for three purposes to win the loss to Christ, to edify the saints, and to glorify God. It's funny how that works, isn't it? That the purpose of the church and the gifts that he's given us, they align to do the same thing. And and here, Peter is clear that one of the ways we keep the unity of the church is by serving one another, by utilizing those gifts that he's given us. And then he gives us a couple of examples. He said, if you speak oracles, he's talking about exhortation. If you have the gift of exhortation, the exhortation, by the way, is the ability to communicate 
emphatically urging people to do something. Then he says, if you have that gift of exhortation, you better use it. One of the main gifts of a preacher is exhortation, or at least it should be to be able to explain God's word, to encourage you emphatically to do something based on God's word. The second one he says here is serving. Now, some degree, we all should be serving one another. That's what scripture tells us. But there are some within our midst who have the supernatural gift of serving one another. And he says that we need to serve. And when we serve, we do it for the good of those whom we are serving, but we do it more so for the glory of God. Maybe this is the best part when we talk about unity in the church. We're not commanded to create unity. I find that interesting. As I was studying unity this past couple of weeks, nowhere did I ever see Jesus or one of the apostles say that we are to create unity. Never, not one time. What we are to do is to maintain the unity that already exists. Now that's good news, isn't it? That we are to maintain the unity that already exists. It says in Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now I've been practicing a magic trick. I don't know if this is going to work. I'll be real honest with you. I got lucky in the first service and it worked, but who knows if it's going to work again. As you can see, I have a little piece of string right here, right? And let's imagine that this piece of string is collectively you and I. It's all of us that are in Christ. Let's pretend that if we were holding hands and we were making this long string, this one line together, that, that each of us, when we become believers in Jesus Christ, we become a part of this string. And because of the Holy Spirit, what does he do? He unites us together. He binds us. He ties us together. And if I can tie a knot, you would think, as all the many fishing knots I've tied, I could tie a knot in a string, but I cannot. My fingers are too big. Oh, I got it. He binds us together as one, right? We have unity with one another. And in that unity with one another, we are bound together. But guess what happens in that unity? There's something that happens. Maybe somebody gets their feelings hurt. Maybe there's false doctrine that is being taught. Maybe someone gets angry for some reason, and that unity is cut. It is broken. And no longer are we unified. No longer are we together. And we see churches, and we see bodies of Christ all over the world that happen, that something comes in. One or two little people in a group of so many can change so quickly what has happened. And so we need the Holy Spirit. We, we need to maintain that unity. And the only way that we can maintain that unity is within the Spirit of God. And he comes in and he, he clears our heart of the sin. He makes us whole again. He says that you're brand new and the Holy Spirit makes us united once again. This is what the church is about. We don't let anything come together, come against us, but when we do, we lean back on the Holy Spirit because he is the spirit that bonds us together in peace. 
I love that, don't you? That he bonds us together in peace. We are to put into practice the unity of the Spirit, which is created by the Spirit, who indwells each and every one of us. But when the cords are cut, when they are broken, we are to call on the Holy Spirit to tie us back together again. So we must take great pains to guard carefully the unity that is ours, the harmony that we have. And when we maintain this unity of spirit, we will be at peace. Isn't the world around us looking for peace? Oh, even those in our church are looking for peace. God has established peace through Jesus. He has reconciled us to himself. And and he has done that through the cross. It is only through the cross that we can have peace Peace is the overriding character of the unity between believers. It is the glue that binds us together. This brings us to another part of our definition. We are bound to one another and God through the gospel. We are bound together through the gospel. When we trust in Jesus alone as our Savior, we are bound together through the Holy Spirit. And without the cross, there can be no gospel. Did you know that? The cross and the gospel have to go together. You and I are saved from sin by accepting Jesus as our Savior and Lord by hearing the gospel. Paul says, how will they know if they do not hear? We must hear the gospel. Do you even know what the gospel is? Do you know what the gospel is? It means good news. And what is that good news? It is the good news that Jesus is the way of salvation, that there is no other way. And If there is good news, guess what? There must be bad news. And you go, well, Brother David, what is that bad news? Well, let me tell you what that bad news is. And let me illustrate it through the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it showed us the bad news. God said to Moses, he goes, listen, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the people, and here are my laws, and I want them to live by these laws. Those laws, the Ten Commandments, but there were much more than just the Ten Commandments. They became a measuring stick. How many of you parents have, or kids, have you ever went and, and you measured them on the door sills, right? I know with my girls, we have where we measured them, and then a few months later, you're, and they get taller and taller and taller. We've all done that as parents and grandparents, right? You know, even as our girls, and even as I got older, I can remember doing it at, at 50-something years ago. God said there's a measuring stick. And if you want to have eternal life, if you want to have salvation, if you want to live forever in heaven with me, he says you have to measure up. And here is how you measure up. It is the law. Paul tells us in Romans that here is this law. And the law was there not to, to, uh, to, to say that it's there to, um, to save us, but rather it is to show us that we cannot save ourselves. And so the law is there. It's a, how many of you have gone to the amusement park and you want to ride a ride and it says you got to be this tall to ride the ride and you can't ride the ride? Well, this measuring stick, this, this, this law says that you have to be perfect. And on that measuring stick, there's a line that says perfection. And every single person in human history has come to this measuring stick and we back up to it and every single one of us falls short of the perfection. 
we don't make it there. Even if it's just one hair off, you cannot make it to heaven because you are not perfect. But there was the one, the one God-man, the human being named Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who uh, lived a sin-free life, he says, listen, Father, I will go up to that measuring stick. And when he gets up and he backs up to that measuring stick, he blew it away because he was the one who lived a perfect life. And then he said, Father, I will take their place. I will stand in their way. I will be an atonement so that they don't have to have the punishment. You know what the punishment is? The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God demonstrated his love for us, though, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, you will never measure up on that measuring stick, but Jesus has. And if you accept his salvation, if you accept his gift, you too can be saved. And here's the worst of the bad news. Not only did that measuring stick tell us how bad we are, that measuring stick also points us to what the consequences are. There is a place, and we don't talk about this in the church nearly enough, but there is a place that's called total separation from God, and it's called hell. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus alone, you're going to a place called hell. I don't want anybody to go. A place where there's no light. Total separation. I can't even fathom what hell is. I think hell is way worse than heaven is way great. Because I can't even, at least I can fathom what it might be. And even as I imagine what heaven is, it's going to be greater than that. As I even try to imagine what hell is, it's even going to be worse than that. Total separation from God. I don't want anybody I know to go there. The gospel then involves these elements. That Jesus was born of a human being. He lived a sinless life, and he died on the cross for our sin. And because he was the only sinless human being, he is the only one that can atone for. He is the only one that can step in our place for sin. And in his perfection, he full, fulfilled the law's righteousness requirement and presented himself to God on our behalf by dying on the cross, but it doesn't stop on the cross. He defeated death. He defeated hell by being raised from the dead. Paul says it this way, Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was lifted up because of our sin on the cross, but he was raised again so that we could be justified in the eyes of God, that means that we are made, it's paid in full by Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection are what makes salvation and eternal life in heaven possible. The fact that Jesus conquered sin and death is good news, but the fact that he offers us the ability to be saved is even better news, isn't it? Have you been saved by Jesus? If not, let this be the day that you put your faith in Jesus and him alone. That, my friends, 
is the unity of the body of Christ. That when we trust in Jesus alone, we are harmony. We're in harmony. We are united together as one with one thought that stands on the book. And that brings us to the next part of our definition, what unity is not. See, unity is not for the sake of having unity. In Romans chapter 15, verse 14, it says, we are to instruct one another with all knowledge. And in Colossians chapter 3, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. A major part of unity is keeping the truth of God's word, the truth. It's truth whether we believe it or not, number one. But it is trusting in and believing in and standing firmly on the truth of God's word. And with that in mind, we must understand that there can be no harmony, there can be no unity with other churches that don't stand on the truth. There can be no harmony and no unity with other denominations that don't stand on the truth. There can be no harmony, there can be no unity with organizations or individuals if they are not standing on the truth. We must stand on God's word alone. It is the absolute truth. It is inerrant and infallible and inspired by him. There is no mixture of error found within it. And if we are going to be united, if we're going to have harmony with one another, we must base that harmony on this book, the truth. See, we don't pursue unity simply for the sake of unity. It is Jesus and his truth that unites us and nothing else. The Bible tells us to separate from folks who claim to be Christians but live in persistent and unconfessed and unrepentant sin. Did you know that? Even Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18 said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is saying, listen, if you are living in sin, if you're teaching false doctrine, if you're going against the truth of this book, that we are to have nothing to do with you. It's not my words, these are Jesus. In Revelations 2, verses 14 through 15, Jesus tells us that the church in Pergamum to stay away from those who are teaching false doctrine. In Romans 16, 17, Paul tells us to watch out for those who cause division and teach things contrary to the gospel, to stay away from them. And all this is to say that we are to stand on the truth of God's word. If we are going to be united, we are united in this. That doesn't mean that we don't love. <laughs> that doesn't mean that we don't even cooperate. That doesn't mean that uh, we can't even work together. With those, maybe in different churches or denominations. What it means, though, if we're going to be united, if we're going to be the church that God's called us to be, 
that we stand on his book and nothing else. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you for this church. God, that we are together moving forward in the mission that you've given us. We see the evidence of that every week by the way that you're working in our midst. And God, we thank you. We thank you for what you're doing. And as we continue to harmonize and to be united with the mission that you've given us, I pray, Father, that you would continue to bless, to continue to bring new people to our church, continue to see people get saved, continue to see the baptistry stirred. Oh God, and we give you the glory, no one else. The glory is yours and yours alone. Father, maybe there's someone here that needs to trust in Jesus today. They've backed up to that measuring stick and they see that they don't make it. So God, I pray as soon as we stand and begin to sing that they would walk this aisle and say, Brother David, I want to know how to trust in Jesus. I want to accept the gospel. Maybe someone needs to join the church. Maybe right where you're standing, someone needs to just pray for something that's heavy on your heart. Whatever it is, God, we give this time, this invitation to you. In Jesus we pray. Let's